0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here, with the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart Harder, more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello, there's a lot of podcast things happening lately. Do you feel it? I feel it. This interview with my friend Christopher Scott Hills from way back in the beginning of COVID times And unfortunately, it is so unfortunate that I have to say that so many of the things that we talk about are actually still relevant today. It's crazy. Before we get into this one, I do have a call to action that I'd like to make. If it's possible, depending on where you're listening to this, maybe I can ask Chris to extend the deadline for this because it's taken me a little while to get the post-processing for this episode done. Chris actually asked me to ask you because he wants to hear from you. He wants industry professionals to answer this survey to give him some data points so that he can strategize on how Sue Design can position itself for 2021. In the first line of the description of wherever you're listening to this and might show up as the summary, there's a link. It's a Google Doc. It shouldn't take you very long. It's a cool opportunity to help a guest of the show and to make your voice heard, to kind of influence the way that someone that is, in my opinion, one of the most creative forces in the industry. Regardless of if you do the survey or not, in this episode, we talk about being a man in the arena, kind of having your boots in the mud and actually doing the thing as opposed to just pontificating about it. We talk about takeaway and how that should actually Actually, end up being a component of any restaurant's repertoire. We really dive into interior design in restaurant spaces, as well as a new service piece that Sue was working on at the time. And then as per usual, some fun rapid fire questions at the end. I'm going to get out of the way. All of the links are down low in the description if you want to dive deeper. Again, please answer the survey if you can. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Chris, thanks for coming back on the show, man.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: I was looking at the software that I use to record these and the last time we officially like spoke on the record aside from like a few emails back and forth was was last January and I would encourage everybody to listen to that episode to kind of get your background and and what Sue design does but to to avoid re-stepping on those footprints can you just give an update on kind of what you've been up to since we last spoke?
1: Sure so I would consider last year And when we spoke is a good time uh, frame for that, is that um, we were really in the first phase of launching the service model of prototyping, of seeing how the market reacted to what we thought um, is a very valuable and we do think is a very valuable uh, service. Uh, We make assumptions about that. Uh, We had a service model around a few collaborative packages um, to serve a variety of needs and um, spectrums of the marketplace for chefs. So, um, we had a few partnerships with chefs and uh, they were engaging, interesting, um, stimulating, and it led uh, to think about specifically, I think we're in now a very post uh, COVID, pre COVID atmosphere. Um, Some of the insights. Yeah, so some of the insights that I take from the first year of being in the market um, contribute to how I'm looking forward. And uh, just you know, not knowing where the cards are going to land right now with uh, the COVID situation, um, totally, all of that is mixing together into a way of approaching the new market that's shaping. And mm-hmm. I don't have all the assumptions right now. I think there's going to be moments in this conversation where I may want to get the eraser out and go back, because I uh, think all of us should be in a mind frame of we're forming um, ideas right now. We don't we don't entirely know. Yeah, but, I think uh, that. Sorry well, me. I was
0: gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna reference the the kind of ethos and philosophy behind all the people that I enjoy interviewing on this show is that they match with that man in the arena quote. You know, like you you, you don't happen to have like um, you're you're still doing the building, which I really really like because it it can provide some insight and forward progress as opposed to oh, the last time we spoke was when you were on your book tour kind of thing, you know, because, like, you're still in the mud, you're still, like, you're still developing things and um, building this company and doing these, like, real in-the-flesh collaborations as opposed to, um, you know, coasting off of some past accomplishments. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, can continue on that, continue to speak on
1: that. So there were, you know, good faith assumptions we made about the market and how it would respond. Um some of those were correct, some of those were incorrect. Uh, we created a variety of packages to serve chefs. Um, and on reflecting on it, I look at it as almost a car dealership where we were not focused solely on one part of the market. Uh, let's just call it the you know the three-star, two-star, one-star Michelin and the James Beard world. We were not um, opposed to working with at all the uh, food trucks of the world and um, just more normal operation restaurants, um, but it led to a dealership that had uh, everything from a Kia Rio to an Aston Martin. And that uh, I, I think that's a model we want to get away from. Uh, we want to focus mm-hmm. more now on where it's a the most beneficial um, with the service that we provide of custom product design and seeing how that adds to a chef's view of their culinary experience and their product. So truly, you know, the core of it is um, in the same way that you source ingredients, you create a point of view, you explore that point of view and the history of that cuisine. Now you can add to the depth of that through how you serve those things. And so, um, you know, you're not limited to only ceramics and what a particular stone thrower might have created um, that, that you're attracted to, but you're able to say how anthropologically should this be served how um, what do I really want someone to experience let's define that and then let's create that uh, that's what we bring to the table so uh, we had a, the packages we had um, were everything from a basic I have an idea package to when uh, lightning strikes as a chef you can call us up and we can hear that idea quickly prototype and bring it to your table uh, that was at uh, the Kia Rio rate, I would say. Of um, <laughs> it, we called it the dishwasher rate. Right. You know, we wanted no barrier to the market at all. Of that, nothing in in, in the way of uh, the moment of inspiration to call them up. Now, it's it's the same rate I'm paying my dishwasher. Let's get that on the table. Um, There's some production fees involved with that, but again, we're bringing it to your table in the most efficient, cost-effective way possible. Uh, We had a few other packages around um, venture. So when you launch your restaurant, uh, getting into more of a monthly uh, collaborative model where we uh, talk about um, what are the foundational things you're trying to achieve. And we'll partner with you for either two, um, six or eight months, and we'll be able to uh, create new ideas from that. We had a seasonal package where, uh, if you're doing a seasonal menu, uh, we can jump in the process and um, create a few serving opportunities from that. Uh, I'm really inspired about you know the margins of the market and what is being uh, what are new opportunities. And so I was, uh, we had a private residence package where at the very high end, if you were doing a private dinner um, for a dozen people in someone's home you know, obviously a very expensive experience. Um, all of the serviceware would be custom as well. And that could be something that could be left in the, uh, the resident's home after the, the meal. Sure. So you're really kind of like going into more depth than just uh, other chefs might be able to, in that experience.
0: Well, cause most of those a,
1: sorry, go ahead. places
0: probably, well, most of those places probably also have like, I've done some really nice, I'm do- I've done some dinners in some really nice homes and they also usually have like, their own unique interior design aesthetic and Mm -hmm. that would that's just super cool to be able to design a set of things that lives in that home that then you can eat off of I think that there's there's definitely something there
1: yeah I was I was inspired to see that happen Um, and maybe it's Mm -hmm. uh, we had a delivered package where uh, we take a look at the um, this is uh, ironic because it was this was pre-covid uh, the phenomenon of delivery and looking at that as a culinary opportunity. You know, most chefs don't get into the business to um, do Uber Eats or Grubhub, but saying, well, what is the opportunity there? And let's evolve from the basic paper container or the plastic deli cup to a crafted experience that when you receive it in your home, you go, wow, this is, again, it's not exactly as you would ex- receive it in the, in the restaurant with that um attention to detail and everything, but what can we do? You know, there's a lot of other materials we can use. There's other experiences. Uh, That was one package. And then we had a basic um, kind of observation-based service where we came either in the front of the house or the back of the house. And um, just through what we call ethnographic research of observations of different frameworks saying, okay, chef, here are some opportunities that we see that you may not be aware of. And talking about those and, and uh, created them, anyway. All of these packages again, totally broad spectrum of the market. And if COVID had not happened, uh, the shift that we would be making anyway, um, which is maybe live by the time that this episode airs. Again, I'm not going to be launching these until the market has settled a little bit. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no rush right now with being premature. There's no um, there's no need for that. But the service model that I'm moving towards is only a seasonal integration model where there are going to be four opportunities throughout the year for chefs to apply to. And in conjunction with developing a seasonal menu, uh, Sioux Design will uh, be part a soft tangential part of the team uh, that's based on the comfortability of the chef. And as that menu is developing, the aim is to generate as many opportunities as possible for serving. So, um, seeing uh, what their ideas are, what are their insights, what are their expectations, um, and then complementing that with uh, custom design opportunities to extend that experience on the dining table. That, I see, is the one primary, most high demand, and really like the idea and the model that connects the most with the chefs I've spoken with. Um, it's a little bit longer process. It's more holistic. It takes the brand of the chef into account. Um, so that's one that we're really excited about launching when uh, the world um decides what it wants to do with itself.
0: Totally, totally. So much to unpack there. I, I typed down so many notes. I I wanted to first touch on your process of what a lot of people are probably going through right now, which is like, I have a lot of offerings now. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of chefs who ex- exclusively had tasting menus and like you touched on there, they do have a to-go option now. Maybe they have something that's like, oh, we're doing... Um, there's a restaurant in Seattle who's doing like a CSA style box where they're taking products from their favorite purveyors and offering it as a service on or as, a, as a delivery option on like talk. And so when you were kind of evaluating all of the offerings that you had or were making available to people, what were either some resources or the lens by which you looked at those projects to decide which ones to cut and which ones to keep on and continue to iterate on? Was it like you have a mission statement, and if it doesn't match with that mission statement, uh, pro- was it only profitability? Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So really, you know, in in the category of design, we call this designing the invisible. You know, we are coming up with a service model that does not yet exist, and uh, that just takes a spirit of trying things out, seeing what sticks, realizing why it's stuck, and improving it from there. Um, The collaborations we did have last year were ones that materialized very, very quickly and in conjunction with menu planning. So our tower product, uh, that was briefed by a chef as, I have a crappy um, tower that I'm serving a seafood platter on. I don't like it. I want something new. What can you do? And um, the other one that we've been working on, I just sent you pictures of Orb, was a um, briefed as a um, dish to serve foie gras with a frozen blueberry spray over it that could rotate. Um, so what seems to be sticking is the moment of inspiration, the menu planning stage of um, very, very quickly taking the inspiration, doing a live sketching session, um, and these are rough, bad sketches. It's me. on. I found that actually me with a Sharpie in one hand, with a phone in the other, with a big piece of paper on the wall is, is really effective. And so that's kind of what it feels like. Uh, it's virtual. Um, we begin to define what uh, the thing is. And within one meeting, I'm talking about about a week, we go from that loose, terrible sketch to something that's um, rendered, ready to you know prototype beautiful and it's extremely fast and efficient. Um, so that led me to think that the entrance to the collaboration model needs to be in in the spirit of that moment. It can't be something where, okay, I see a $5,000 package. I put it in front of my management team, the holding company of my restaurant group. I get their buy-in, um, There were so many hurdles in that regard, and that was um, one of the unknown challenges that we faced.
0: So I'm hearing that you were able to distill these almost like secondary and tertiary benefits to the clients, and in addition to just getting this great functional uh, piece at the end of it, it's almost like the process by which you get there is almost like your competitive advantage.
1: Yeah, somewhat. Um, I think the only other places to go and get uh, products like this are, um, you know, really through a high-end design consultancy. Mm. And I don't think chefs have a model or an awareness of how efficiently and quickly some of these projects are materializing. Um, so it feels, in a sense, like you're approaching a purveyor. Oh, I'm calling up my um, the guy who gives me the mushrooms or the blueberries or the the grower the Whomever, but we're trying to keep it in that model and that feeling of purveyor. Um, but we're doing a very high end other category service in that regard through the purveyor model, and that's that that that's a challenge, but it's fun.
0: Yeah, where those Venn diagram meets, Venn diagrams meet is usually where the magic happens. You you touched on something that I had in my notes, and I was like so excited to talk to you about it, and you, you beat me to the punch on it, which was. My notes literally say designed in quotes to go containers, possibly to take a menu mobile. And that was just like it, that, that spurred from me seeing a just photo of a completely not disaster of a countertop, but it was a stacked countertop. And I think Nick Kokonis tweeted it of Alinea's to go offerings right now of like they're using deli containers and just like those uh, black bottomed clear top containers that I, I associate with like my one of my favorite Thai restaurants uh, here in Seattle. And so can you can you dig into that? What opportunities have you seen? Is anybody doing anything well right now that is 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 accessible? Like, how does that even scale? Um, yeah, that's that seems like such a challenge.
1: Yeah, a few foundational thoughts on this topic. I think it's just fascinating. But first, um, restaurants are obviously in a survival mode. So judging them by the same criteria as during healthy circumstances is a little, it's just not the point of it. Um, Totally. And I think the second foundation is there's a dominant paradigm out there that to go has to be transactional. Hmm. I would say as opposed
0: that, to an experience,
1: as opposed to an experience. Yeah. And it can be, uh, you can get $150 to go box. If you are the right type of restaurant position and that's your brand, I can make that happen for you. Um, it has to do with what, how it's designed, what the experience is, how it's delivered to you. You have as much opportunity having someone walk out of your restaurant and put it in someone's car as you do is bringing it from the kitchen to the table. You know, the premise is the same. You are cooking food, you are delivering it to someone and they're experiencing it. You know, it's just that there's a dominant paradigm out there of get the paper boxes, get the traditional things, put it in there and just let's survive today. And again, we are in a survival model, that's fine. but there are ways to vacuum form materials. There are ways to use uh, mycelium, which is a mushroom byproduct, to you know press a new type of box. There's ways to um, have end uses of the, of the box that maybe you plant in your garden, or you have a, as an object in your home, or maybe it becomes a bowl or a serving piece. I don't know. There's there's all these ways to approach it that I just don't think has really, really formed yet. I don't know. That, that's just my instinct.
0: I mean, it is showing to be a alternate source of revenue for somebody that has a concept that's ready because we, we frankly don't know <laughs> what the, the rules on public space capacities are going to be. Mm-hmm. And so being able to pull that lever of, I'm able to offer this as a to-go slash delivery option Makes it so that if the government mandate is no restaurants can seat more than 50 people, depending on your square footage, it, it, it's a very real lifeline that people are going to have to think about if they want to continue to
1: stick with the model that they have. And you just used the word lifeline. You mm-hmm. know, I think that's where we, we have to evolve. Well, I'm trying to think how to say this. You um, can't see them as life rafts you know, if you see your to-go offering as a life raft, uh, that's a missed opportunity in my opinion. And again, Mm -hmm. that can be something very different, uh, for, um, you know, 11 Madison park than it is for your favorite taco place down the street. Um, but there is an opportunity in both and it's an extension of your brand experience. You know, it's not a transactional exchange. And I think because, uh, you know, and I, I get this, you know, most of the industry is hoping it's a relatively short phenomenon. I, I think that's totally acceptable and fine, but it doesn't have to be. And it, it can be more of a fulfilling
0: experience, I would say. Well, it's almost like I remember... I mean, the, the guy who kind of pioneered it was, it, in, in my lens, is Charlie Trotter with the chef's menu and then the tasting of vegetables and then Thomas Keller subsequently did you know something similar at French Laundry like mm-hmm. why can that not be the model where it's like you have your dine in you know what i mean like in person experience and then you also have this other option that's designed to go somewhere else you know like and and there's so many opportunities i remember um, my meal at noma was so cool because after eating there, they gave me a little card with like, here's where you should have your next meal. And it was like a bunch of great friends of Noma who also had restaurants of like, here's the coffee shop you should go to. Here's a natural wine place you should go to. Here's where you should go to dinner tomorrow night. And even thinking through that, where it's like, here's a cool menu. And then here's some places within like 20 minutes driving of here where you guys can go and enjoy this.
1: Meal. that's brilliant and that gets into the curatorial aspect that you were talking about of offering the purveyor boxes
0: the
1: mm. um, we are the the center hub of these things and and that's one of the reasons you should engage with us as a restaurant is we are we do have these connections and those connections are valuable um, I think that, that's wonderful
0: yeah the, the the real point and statistic that made me really start to think about this is that when everybody is talking about, Doomsday this, and everything's changing that, which is true in, in, in so many cases. The point was, people aren't eating any less. You know, it, it would be different mm-hmm. if it was like, oh, well, uh, the demand for headphones has gone down. Uh, people are still having to eat their two to three meals a day. And mm-hmm. especially on times of, of celebration, it's it's still the go-to way to bring people together which is food. And so we haven't seen a lack of demand. It's a shifting of how, I guess. And so to 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 really brainstorm how to fill those needs in the market because they're still there. And that's what I really want people to keep top of mind is that the demand has not gone anywhere. It's just shifted. So
1: yeah, and I think the you know, again we look at in design of people through personas. So, who mm-hmm. is this? Uh, what is the archetype that the person thinks about themselves as? What do they value? What do they feel? What are they? Um, what are their aspirations? What are their fears? And I do think there's a, there's such a strong archetype with uh, chefs in the from the pre-COVID world. Um, they see themselves in a certain way. They've been trained that way. They've um, that there's a true psychological persona of, of these people and. Um, that that's not an easy thing to look at differently or challenge or say. Okay, these pieces of that are still valid, um, but I need to adapt these pieces. Uh, you know, there's such a fierce resiliency that chefs have to have to come out with, and um, combining that with the you know the brilliant generator of ideas and and, and what's new, it's a lot of a lot of pressure, and those that achieve it. Um, you know, that's forever a, a branded tattoo on them. That Anyway, just moments like this begin to challenge that. And I do think, you know, it's separating for yourself what you're flexible on and what the new opportunities are is, is always important. Um, you know, with the delivery model, there's other ways to look at it. Uh, companies obviously like Blue Apron have taken advantage of subscription. You know, why can't you subscribe to an incredible restaurant? Um, there are ways to diversify the revenue models that... I think, could be further explored. You know, that's not incredibly... I'm not the first to propose that. But I would subscribe to a few restaurants if I knew that a certain product was going to show up once a week. Um, We also explored that with a restaurant here in Savannah recently where uh, they were... uh, Their chef was producing this incredible bread that wasn't for sale. And um, diners kept asking, well, can I purchase this? Uh, what, What does it cost? I would love to you know, get this every week for my family. And it led them to see the business opportunity. But uh, it was proposed through through the subscription model. What if you design a mailbox for people? And that mailbox is in the shape of the bread that arrives. So we, you know, take um, sheet metal, we do the whole thing, we do it in your brand colors. And you have a special mailbox that becomes a symbol in the neighborhood for that product, and that's how you get it. You don't have to go to the restaurant to order it and pick it up. Um, so things like that really interest me uh, with delivery.
0: That's fascinating. I, I, <laughs> I had not even gone down that rabbit hole yet, but that's like that's old school milkman model, right? Like you leave the branded kind of like plastic container like with a handle outside of your, on your porch, and it's just expected that the milkman's gonna come by and drop off your, your, your delivery.
1: Yeah, and it's not um just because it's antiquated doesn't mean it's irrelevant. It's, you know, I remember my grandma talking about that, you know, the milkman coming down the street, but Totally. Uh, there there's a there's something to say there, so.
0: Well, and it's it's taking in like uh my what was it? The the publication in my hometown growing up was called the Post Crescent and there was just like you could add a little adjacent mailbox to yours that was your post crescent mailbox and it's just so cool to see an industry like the news which is you know shifted to going from this physical thing to going more digital and then it's kind of getting not replaced but there's inspiration to be gained from this thing that was you know in person and now it's going into your home to take inspiration from those other industries is, is fascinating.
1: Yeah, and you can go even deeper. You can, again, take the brand experience. You you don't just make a metal mailbox in the shape of a loaf of bread. You design a metal mailbox that when it's delivered and closed, it begins to warm up the bread.
0: And you deliver it at a
1: certain time of the day when you know the people are going to be coming home or when they want to eat that. And uh, you have it send them a text that it's there. and I don't, With a coupon for 10% off your... In person dining experience. You know, like there's right. all these ways to just. I don't, you know, Sue doesn't want to go too much into the um, customer relationship marketing side of a business's mm-hmm. operation. Uh, but generating these ideas is, is really interesting for us.
0: Can you speak a little bit on getting inspiration from your wife's job with interior design and how that kind of plays off of? Because I, I would, I would hazard to say that that gives you kind of like a different lens to look through things and then she also probably plays off of of your experience with designing like individual service pieces
1: yeah it's 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 a really interesting topic um the the development of a space and the development of the service of that space so uh you know interior designers work really similarly uh there's a research phase a planning phase a you know, then you once you have the, the basics in place, you say, okay, who is this person? What do they value? What is the brand I'm creating? What is the experience expectation? And where are the little differences that this space um, should have rather than every other space? So, you know, the, the ones that she once recently worked on is a new um, kind of a showpiece restaurant in Savannah. Here, it's right in the middle of the park. Uh, it's Collins Quarter at Forsyth. It's designed to um, welcome everyone from getting a popsicle at the takeout window to um, a dining experience at night that you would pay, you know, over a hundred dollars for. So it's, it's a wide spectrum of a market. It's an interesting design opportunity in that sense. And it it can't alienate anyone. You have to, you know, feel free to ride your bike up to the window and also, um, you know, uh, drop off your car for valet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I don't know. I think I see a lot of uh, places going in that um, that wide spectrum and um, just, you know, talking about where are the relevant brand opportunities with it. So uh, because of this restaurant's in the park, um, thinking contextually about the location more broadly and saying, you know, when women are doing um, baby buggy workouts at 8 a.m., where do they come and where do they put their baby buggy? Right. You know, That's right. That is an important thing for those people who engage with this uh, dining space. And so uh, part of the restaurant is adaptable to move out um, during certain times, uh, large areas. And uh, there's a core dining side on one side, and then there's more of a um, dynamic table setting on the other next to where the coffee bar is. And so you can bring in your buggy and put it somewhere and not feel like you're uh, messing things up for the restaurant. So again, this is service design. This is thinking about um, the service model and how it changes throughout the day. And um, so th- anyway, like th- there's just all these ways that begin to connect. And, you know, for me, with Sue, again, getting focused in on the, how do you want to evolve and express the um, the way people, you know, experience your food? That That's really... The focused place where I'm going with Sue, but uh, a vision project is certainly at the foundation stage of planning your restaurant with that lens in mind. Um, The more you can integrate uh, the experience to think about the table and uh, coming off of the hot plate and how it relates to the service wear, um, I just think it creates a, a much richer evolutionary experience for chefs.
0: Yeah, I think that position going forward into this decade is going to be even more valuable <laughs> to think about, like, uh, table spacing, uh, being able to maximize on the square footage you have, making sure that if you do have a different offering, whether it's, like, something that is that is not going directly into the dining room to structure the space so that it is conducive to productivity as opposed to, like, you're talking about where where it's just an afterthought and it's just um, you know, part part of uh some gravy on top of your business from a revenue perspective. Um,
1: yeah, well, I, and there's I, design implications for the space that we haven't even thought about. Uh, you know, if your bar seating, if your stools are bolted to the floor and they're not uh, able to be moved, I think that's a interesting um, that that's like new design criteria that we're going to be working with as designers.
0: There is a Instagram. Question from Sleep is Needed, and they ask Are there any designs you couldn't or refused to do? Hmm.
1: Uh, I've been approached a few times about a chef's coat mm-hmm. to wear during service. Yep. And that's a really interesting project. I don't refuse to do it, but um, I need to assemble the right team to work on it with. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in, um, fashion or, um, textiles and certainly performance textiles in that setting. So I can certainly get those people together, but it's a type of project where if it's a very soft, casual brief or, you know, bouncing it off of, and, um, you know, the products we have worked on have materialized in that way. And they've, you know, I've been able to move them forward very quickly and efficiently, but. Something like that requires me to put a team together of experts, um, which we can certainly do. But it takes a little more investment and planning. It's fascinating.
0: I, I told like I have had this apron vision for well, coming up on four or five years now. Um, like a better apron for creatives, like people that work with their hands and move around a lot. And you know, it it is like this very performance related vision for how this product will will manifest itself because there there is and to echo whoever approached you with this project there is a frustration and a need for a better uniform a better chef uniform out there so whether it's you or i i hope to see it in the market someday because it's very needed
1: yeah it's interesting challenge um i think too with the COVID era There are expectations that may creep in, which I'm fascinated by. So I think, you know, you can go back to the roots of how the traditional chefs wear have come about. And again, I'm not a fashion historian, so I don't entirely know I'm speculating right now, but it feels very like it's um, in the mechanic world of this is Mm -hmm. an outfit I can take on and take off. I can get dirty. I can rub my hands on it. um, And I can just, you know, kind of toss it in a corner and walk away. Now, some other industries do that as well, and you know I, what comes to mind in, in the COVID world is, is um, nurses and, she- totally. and um, 100%. you know surgeons almost. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we could begin to take more inspirations from nurses and surgeons for what chefs wear, and that might have positive business uh, applications. You know, totally. You, again, it depends state by state. If you are in New York City and you see that uh, the restaurant's being approached a certain way by management and by the chefs, you might be more willing to go dine there. Again, this is if we're into wave two and wave three. Um, People are going to be looking at these experiences differently. Uh, Again, if you are in Nebraska, middle of nowhere, this is probably not something that you need to worry about. But uh, there's just going to be applications that draw on other industries. And I'm interested to see where that goes.
0: Well, because the initial reason for the kind of like double lapeled um, or like the the reversible uh, chef coat where you could kind of like switch the front panel is so that you could walk as a chef owner you could walk into the dining room with a quote-unquote clean chef jacket to cover up the meat jus or tomato sauce that was on your lapel Mm -hmm. and on your on your front panel from from working in the kitchen and that was just to exude this you know, like that's why they're white, you know, to, to to exude cleanliness and like you're eating in a place that's clean and, and cares about sanitation and all of that. I think that it, what you're speaking about with it going a step further is it's going to be not just cleanliness from an aesthetic perspective, but like this, this invisible kind of like cleanliness, you know, where I know that I'm eating in a safe place, you know, not just a clean place, but a safe place. And I think that what we wear can often Communicate more than we, what we realize.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way you just said that is perfect. Uh, the priority of eating in a safe place in certain markets is going to be the, the priority for sure. Yeah,
0: totally, totally. Speaking on another very exciting product, I have it on the screen for everybody who's like watching the video version of this right now. This Orb project, man. I like. I was like. I was looking at it, and I was like. I was trying to understand it, and then I read your. Uh, brief on it and then I started to like I could see a dish plated inside of it and I I got really excited by it so can can you speak on on the orb the design process of it um yeah share more on this because it's really exciting
1: yeah this briefed um with a chef who we are still finalizing some contract uh details with this about so I'm not going to reveal the name sure but um it, it materialized with him saying, you know, we have this vision of a rotational dish that holds foie gras that I can spray um, frozen blueberry over and uh, keep them in my freezer, put them out really quickly and um, have a scooping effect with it. So started really quickly, you know, fast sketching. Uh, I'll actually send you that original sketch so you can take a look at where it started and then um, moved in, into a form. That I found really inspiring. It almost feels a little bit like retro furniture. Yeah. Uh, where we started, there's this kind of like lounge chair feeling to it on the mm-hmm. table. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, from there, then the uh, utility of the piece was put into the front of it where it has a, a deeper inset. And it started with um, a material application that was purely a form of plastic it's a laser sintered uh, polyamide, which is actually a form of nylon. And uh, this material has some dining applications, which if used in certain ways is totally fine. Um, so we created it with that as the first round, uh, sent it over to him, and he and his team looked at it. They tried it out a bunch and they just said, you know what, we love the form, but uh, this entirely in this material just doesn't work for us. Uh, it had some... When he put it in the freezer, I believe it scratched a little bit. So that was a uh, mm-hmm. not being in the space um, and seeing how he was using it uh, changed the way we were thinking about the original material. So brought it back. You know, we were able to keep the form, but uh, moved into a cast concrete way of creating it. And uh, it's a form that I would love to do in ceramic. And you know, but uh, because of how the surfaces curve and go through the whole piece, there's a hole going you know through the entire thing, which is important. And uh, you just can't create that with ceramic. Um, So concrete was the selection. And, um, you know, I think we've seen... There's a bit of a trend right now of going to these very raw um, ancestral materials that have been around for a long time. And I think Mm -hmm. they're inspiring. Um, But anyway, uh, parts... The whole thing moved into purely injection-molded concrete. I figured out a way to... um, Create a certain mix of concrete that allowed to go in a, into an injected mold, was cured, pulled out, and um, that had some production limitations to it. Uh, a lot of months were spent figuring that out, and then finally uh, we got almost to um, completing the piece, and then you know the COVID situation hit, Ouch. so we lost track of each other a little bit, and I just said, you know, let me move this forward over the next few months, um, take some time to prototype and explore, and I separated the interior of it. From the exterior. So the interior now is that original material of um, laser sintered polyamide. And the exterior, the whole thing around it is cast concrete. So found a way to do that. Again, like I think you should take the, the note here of preserving the integrity of the original idea. And in the same way, you know, that chefs have that original spark of this is what the dish is all about, you know, now I need to adjust some details. That's how this piece materialized too. Um, I wasn't willing to compromise on the whole thing, but, you know, we added more depth to it. um, And it's now just, it's a pretty cool piece. It's really functional. It can go in the dishwasher. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a fun little thing. So excited to finalize this with the chef and um, get it on the market hopefully soon.
0: So that inner black piece is removable and it just, does does it clip in in any way or just because of the way that it's measured, it just kind of like snugly fits into the shell?
1: Uh, It started um, when I was at the last phase of working on this. It started with what you just said, actually, of thinking Mm. that I could cast the concrete piece and then insert the interior. Uh, That got about 90% there. Uh, It just wasn't exactly how I envisioned it. So I came up with a different production method Of actually casting that piece directly in the concrete so it will not come out
0: I see I see so then that that entire shell with the black insert goes into the like that's how you would need to clean it correct yeah got it got it that stand that it that it um sits on when it's up and angled can that also function as a lid or does that inner kind of hole that comes like the volcano, the top of the volcano is how I'm going to call it. Does that impede that working as a lid?
1: Uh, you could. And so it depends, I I think on your philosophy of serving. Mm. Um, we looked at both ways and you could deliver to the table with the top on and a little spoon piece of it is, um, the diner opens it up, has the exploratory moment, um, and then hopefully they put the piece onto the, um, the little base and then they rotate right. it. That, that's a lot of expectation for the mm-hmm. diner and I haven't mm-hmm. fully prototyped to see if that's what they really do. Totally. So the, the vision was a little bit more of the server brings the, the base with the spoon on it, sets that on the table and then brings the orb um, from the freezer, removes the spoon part, puts that to the side, puts the orb on there. And then the diner, all they have to do is rotate and scoop out.
0: And that's probably the coolest part about this, because I can only imagine that the curve of that spoon piece is like exactly matched to the curvature of the inner inner piece, which it is. From you know, buying a buying a cool service piece is one thing, but having it match with the the thing that the guest is using to consume it with is like a whole nother level of like custom design and just probably enjoyment of of eating the dish
1: yeah exactly uh that's one thing i haven't even said to anyone which i'm interested it's really interesting yeah. that you saw that <laughs> yeah like the arc of that little spoon does fit perfectly with the arc on the inside and um, that was rotationally used to remove the the depth of the interior
0: well j- even speaking practically like thinking through if you were to give me like the standard kind of soup spoon or or even like a like a flatter kind of fish spoon to to eat a dish out of this especially talking about the 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 edible piece of the dish that you're talking about which is like a a, a smoother kind of foie gras um it would probably decrease the life of this thing because the guest is probably like continuing to scrape uh, with a piece of metal on this, on this service piece to try to get every last bit of the foie gras out of there. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm even thinking through like even seeing this to, to come up with a, a like a bread that, cause I uh, even thinking through like, I've had this dish in my head for a long time of wanting to do um, a dish that's focused on the idea of um, taking Indian flatbread and, eating with it, like using it as a way, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. when you have, when you have that last bit of sauce on the plate, or even if you're just, you know, eating, eating lentils out of a bowl with, with just bread and this kind of service vessel where you can kind of rotate it and then have a piece of bread that you eat with is, is really, really inspiring to see a design like this because yeah, you could like, you could have some sticky, not, not sticky, but like, sauces that adhere to the top of the bowl so as you eat you get different flavors you know you kind of like you start with something spicy at the bottom and then as you rotate it you kind of have like these cooling kind of elements as you rotate around the dish I don't know like these are just things that are coming top of mind as I'm looking at this but it's it's really really cool man
1: oh thank you I really appreciate that and I think I like what you're bringing up the lens you know not as an expert uh, as a chef would look at what you just described of the flatbread and the sauces and all that. Um, you know, we talk about what is appropriation versus appreciation. Um, right. What is the history of that uh, culinary tradition and mm. what is a relevant evolution of it? So I don't know that that's a really fruitful conversation to have around, um, you know, revering the tradition of it and saying, well, where, where can it go next? Does it need to go anywhere next? or and that, that leads to the anthropological part of, of design, which really fascinates me of why are we making this? Why are we creating it? Um, you know, where is it going?
0: Totally. And yeah, I think that the, the, to echo what I spoke about on our last episode in, you can have, I mean, the, the, the chef that you worked with probably has had this dish for a while, the foie gras with blueberry dish for a while but it inherently becomes something new when served in this way because the opportunities just open up and that's where i think that there's just so much value to be to be had to working on something like this where you're you're able to present i mean that's my whole ethos with like flavor and execution that's how i, I that's how i personally try to evaluate food and to give yourself such a leg up on the execution side when plating things in different ways and serving, serving ideas in different manners. It's a no brainer.
1: Yeah. I'm interested to see what happens just with the whole category in general moving forward. But, um, you know, the, I used to think that when I first launched, I thought that we would really just be a custom product design and innovation studio, purely supporting chefs. And we certainly will always have that service model. Um, but I see it becoming more focused on a future thinking culinary anthropology company of, you know, if if we were to take food historians and culinary anthropologists and put them on one side of the coin, I would love to be the other side of the coin looking in the opposite direction. Interesting. How far to the horizon can we we reasonably see right now?
0: Thinking through those collaborations, what have been some kind of Insights. I'm 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 hoping to have you speak more on the collaborating with chefs in general because we spoke about it a little bit in our last conversation. But you've you've had a lot more road testing of it, and so whether it's new questions that you ask now that you didn't ask uh, prior to this, or um, systems or resources that you offer chefs to think through creatively, um, can you speak a little bit more on chef collaborations just in general?
1: Yeah. So I do like to start where they're comfortable, um, just because this is a new thing. Uh, we do have a point of view about how this can move forward, but uh, you have to you know, have some foundations of developing a relationship. So hearing what they're all about, what inspires them, um, what their vision is, um, and um, the way that it's proceeded is uh, with very direct ideas. So that's a great starting off point and um, you know, evolving into more of a soft, tangential member of the team is the vision. But um, with those direct asks, it, it really just becomes about del- delivering unexpected value extraordinarily fast. Um, so we start in an engaging, quick way, um, getting some ideas in front of them on paper, which is actually I, I'm, I'm finding a very gratifying, exciting moment for a chef. Um, you know, a lot of them have no problem with picking up a Sharpie and doing a quick doodle. And I, you know, I do the exact same thing. I usually get, oh, you can draw really well. But in those moments, uh, it's it's terrible drawing. Uh, But it's engaging, it gets our minds working, it gets them talking, it gets them uh, describing the vision. And well, wait, what if it did this? What if it did that? Um, And, you know, this is totally apart from talking about materials or execution or the details of design. This is just what do you want to experience? So first we focus on that. Um, Tell me about how you envision someone using this. uh, What inspires you about it? How does it connect to your culinary vision? From there, uh, I go away. (laughs) (laughs) And um, there's a period of, um, hopefully very quickly, we're able to do the, the actual design work of thinking about what this piece could be, um, aligning that with the budgets. You know, we've loosely began to talk about the time frame that's required. All of those dictate design details and material selection and production process. So it could be that I have an idea materializing and um, actually it's just a horizon idea. Six months from now is fine. Um, you know, reasonable production budget is in place and I can go, oh, okay, we can do that in ceramic. We can do it in concrete. We can do it in uh, CNC'd uh volcanic stone, I don't know what, but it, it's more open. Uh, the more delineations that get put onto the process, uh, say I need this in a four weeks and I only have, um, you know, max 2,000 bucks to to work with for producing 50 of these. That's where, that's a really exciting challenge. It's not that it binds my hands at all. It just puts really strict parameters on the project and it says, okay, now I have to think in this material. Now I have to think in this production process, and that actually produces innovation. It makes you think about those processes differently as a designer. It makes you um, focus on a form that uh, has to perform a certain way. And I do not waste a chef's time with showing you know concepts that can't be executed. So by that first meeting where we're starting to look at what this thing is, you're going to see it photorealistically. You're going to see it. Um, production costs, you're going to see timeline. All of that is going to be together in one package. So you go from initial sketch, quick conversation, again, 15-30 minutes, I can move you through that, um, to the second meeting where you are seeing photorealistic renders of the piece, how much it's going to cost you, and when you're going to be able to get it by. So again, it's important to remember these are through the lens of somewhat prototyping, we're making good case assumptions about material performance and usage. And the the example I shared about uh, the chef getting it and uh, a little bit of scratching happening changed the process. And so being a little flexible is important.
0: Well, I was going to ask on that uh, with these kind of creative constraints that chefs will often bring up, whether it's durability or I'm even thinking through like uh this uh you know like a a a restaurant that has a little bit like a a higher guest count looking at something like the orb it's it's probably a, a case of like hey just so you know like from an interior design perspective my kitchen is 30 meters away from my dining room and we have a lot of six tops so i have to increase my staffing because only like each server can only carry two of these whereas if i serve it in this other plate they can carry three so like Mm -hmm. have you have you come into like how do you navigate those constraints that like uh that are that are unique to restaurants as opposed to if you were doing something for um you know like a home goods store Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that's a really great question um so I can use the example of the tower project that we worked on, and that uh, part of the initial design conversation was, "Yeah, I hate my current seafood tower, but I also have these pretty small tables, and I the the current ones that I use take up a lot of space. Yeah, they're and they so also wide, cause a lot of storage issues. Mm. So he didn't know that he was actually giving me a huge insight, but um, the reason it became what it was is because it uh, takes up very little space on as a footprint on the table. And it also allows him to um, scale this thing from, you know, you can use it with three leaves, three levels, or you can scale it up through, um, I haven't gone as high as I think, I think you could get about 20 on there. Uh, So he's able to use it for, I think, you know, it's extremely rigid material. It, It supports the weight. Well, it's got a heavy concrete base, but because of that, Um, He's able to do a curated event with maybe three of these at 20 high, you know, for canapes or seafood, whatever he'd like. And um, we also talked about the storage of how easy it would be for him to store these because of that. Um, And, you know, again, like it, it came down to finding the inspiration for the design in the right places. I looked at, because we started with a seafood tower, I said, well, where is their verticality in the ocean, so we looked at kelp forests, wow. and then I looked at well, where is there um, surface optimization in nature? And we looked at eucalyptus leaves. How they we mm. actually look at those? They every layer rotates about ninety degrees, so that uh, it maximizes how much sunlight the plant can get in a vertical setting. So all of those little insights began to form the DNA of a design. And then the constraints that the chef put on it, um, you know, help mold it as well.
0: That's but, amazing. <laughs> like that's, that's but, exactly you know, what also, like, there's also yeah. only
1: so many problems we can solve. Um, right. and if I hear problems that I cannot solve reasonably with what I do, I just say it. And I'm like, you know what? I get you. I, I, I hear this is a thing. I hear it might disrupt a little bit of your current model. Um I'm gonna put that a little bit more in your court and sure. I'm happy to talk with you about it, but I, I don't always have an answer.
0: Uh Adi JSF Juicy asked about your inspiration when you started off, and you can speak a little bit on that, but I <clears throat> I wanted to just touch on where you thought Sue Design would be. You know, at this stage in the game versus where it actually is, and to to speak on that a little bit because there has been a lot of productive adjusting that you've you've had to do, and for for great reason. But um, just to kind of speak on that, like expectations versus reality of of the business itself, because I think you're very practical about it, and I, I I want to share that.
1: Yeah, when you launch a new product or service, um, again, you are designing the invisible. You are making you should be doing research. You should uh, have a strategy of a beachhead market of who you're going to land with and who you're going to scale from. You should also assume that you're going to write that whole business plan and uh, a month into it, 90% of it is not going to apply. <laughs> but still, still write the plan because you need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit uh, Tim Brown, who's the leader of a firm called IDEO, which is a product design innovation consultancy that's been around for a long time. He describes it as you're setting off. Uh, you can see uh, across the shore on a, with a little boat that you're in of where you're headed. You jump in the rowboat, you got, start going as fast as you can. And all of a sudden there's all this fog that you know comes in. And if you just keep rowing, you know, the shore is there, just keep going, you know, right. Um, if you don't stop doing that, you'll be okay. And so again, you have to look at it through your launching with, um, assumptions and how people actually respond is going to be different than what you thought. So uh, we, you know, optimized our collaboration packages for 2020, launched them, and then the whole, every assumption about the market changed with COVID. Right. Um, and I don't know where that's going to land yet. You know, I think I'm inspired to think back to the, the meteor hitting the earth, the extinction level event, and um, I don't know yet... Who who is going to evolve and emerge and what sorts of new things are going to be. Totally. So I'm I'm just kind of chilling and waiting and working on internal projects. And I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky right now. So. Yep.
0: um, I want to touch on a few rapid fire questions to wrap things up and then you can kind of uh, tell people where to find you and and share any parting thoughts that you'd like to share. Uh, An interesting question that was asked on Instagram that I, that I, um, I'm just curious from personally to hear your thoughts on it is B Y a lady TV asks, would you rather vacation in Hawaii or Alaska and why? And I don't think I would know how to answer this uh, from, for Christopher.
1: I don't know. I'm not, I guess both. I, yeah. I just, I think the whole idea of a vacation has, I don't know. It's, it's changed. It, mm-hmm. the reasons why people travel, um, I guess I would want to go to Hawaii, maybe with some people, and have a group vacation, and then go to Alaska by myself. I don't know.
0: Nice, <laughs> more more quiet solitude in the mountains and the ocean. Sure. Um, we, my, I mean, my question, um, on previous interviews and most interviews is to kind of ask a guest about like a dream meal that they would want to have, which you were so thoughtful to answer last time, but. I think it's only appropriate to switch the question to like what places are you hopefully excited to frequent again if everything goes back to normal? Like what are you craving right now in your quarantine days?
1: Hmm. I think one of the indirect products of a restaurant has always been camaraderie and Mm -hmm. enjoyment of people and I crave that more than actually like food right now. I think right. um, getting a bottle of wine and sitting around with great friends and just enjoying the night is more of the product I want right now than any anything else.
0: Yeah, I saw uh, someone posted on Twitter that was like, uh, when I get to go back and sit in a restaurant again, I'm going to cry. And I think that that's like a sentiment <laughs> that's shared across so many people <laughs> Yeah, tears uh, are going
1: to be a new seasoning in the post-COVID yeah, world. For sure, for sure.
0: Any parting thoughts you want to share? Where can people find you? Uh, what did we miss?
1: Yeah, our hub is on Instagram at uh, Design. We do have our website, SueDesign.com, uh, which um, will, in the coming few months here, share new collaboration packages and methods of applying for those seasonal collaborations that we're going to be offering. Um, you know, Those, again, are the assumptions made from the first year in market. So that's one part. The second part is um, I am waiting to see what emerges in the culinary world that's new and interesting and unexpected. So um, it may be that the, the little booth at Costco with the woman with gloves and a hairnet serving sausages and microwave food evolves as an inspiration into a new form of culinary experience and I don't know that's just an example of a little weird corner of the world that um, might have some new application so things like that that become culinary opportunities are, are what we're going to be looking for uh, whether that's the food truck world whether that's the um, the high-end restaurant world whether that's uh, the place down the street um, just what are those unexpected evolutions in the market and does it What application does it have to our value proposition? And then also, you know, we're starting to think about the odd reality of surplus of chefs in the market right now. Yeah. What can we do with that? Um, Hmm. There's going to be people who just aren't working. And that the talent is there. So I'm starting to think about, and if anyone listening to this is an investor and wants to talk about this idea, um, starting to put it together but the idea that you can have a dining experience in a design studio and we can bring chefs into that sort of like, I don't know, almost like a fashion show Right. can interpret a new season of Sue's um, service wear and, and dining wear through your own lens. And you don't need the full investment of a restaurant to come in for three, four months to do that whole thing. So I don't know the model of that yet but I'm intrigued with how I could bring chefs into Sue versus Sue going into the chef world too.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, I think that that that's probably getting a lot of people very excited because it's you, you know, it, regardless of when someone is listening to this episode, I think that there's like there's always that spark of creativity that that attracts people to being in this industry just in general and i'm happy to hear that you're continuing to push that element of this forward because i don't think it's going anywhere man like we're we're all we all crave like it's a it's a human desire to explore and see what's possible and i think that you're very good moment
1: yeah it's a good moment for reflection um i don't know i mean how much do you want to go back to the grueling model of what was So for example, um, being resilient through the ups and downs of day-to-day business is fine, but this is almost a situation where resiliency is irrelevant. Um, You can only be resilient so long to so many things where this is such a reshaping event that um, different coping mechanisms and different approaches I think are valuable.
0: I'm happy that the industry has people like you t- to think about these things because we're, we're going to need it. We're going to need it. So- well,
1: you know, and, and I have to thank you for having me on here because there are so many more relevant voices than mine right now and um, people who are doing innovative things that deserve attention and time and discussion. And um, So I'm just really honored that you even asked me to come on and um, lend my thoughts and I hope they've been inspiring and helpful for people.
0: It is always inspiring, man, and I, th- I think that it's. I mean, my my big pitch to everybody right now is like safety has to be the priority. Like the mm-hmm. the only way we're going to get back to any semblance of getting back into kitchens and feeding people and being productive to, by doing this thing that we love is is to make sure that uh, our citizens and our families feel safe. And so, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to to that moment where we can all sit down again and enjoy that camaraderie so until next time man thanks so much again for being on the show we did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com justinkana is the place to do that. That. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justinconnor.com If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now as Normally, where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one. But you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, Excuse me. Pardon me.